Well, good morning. Thank you, those of you who have uh, expressed your prayers and concern for me and my shoulder. Uh, I had, did not have surgery two weeks ago like I originally thought. It'll be this week. So keep the prayers going. It's uh, for my this shoulder. This one was four years ago. This one is coming up four days from now. Uh, so just pray that that goes well. And it's not rotator cuff. Uh, that would be such an inconvenience. So, But uh, torn a ligament or something in it. Um, I don't remember doing it, but that's what the MRI showed. So they're going to go in there and roto-root it a little bit and hopefully get it back in shape. Maybe you've heard the story about the drunk man who was looking for his car keys. He was standing by a streetlight at night looking around for his car keys, and eventually he just just sort of grabbed the streetlight and was just kind of sitting there looking around. And this policeman comes up to him and asks him, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm looking for my car keys. So the policeman says, I'll help you. So he looked around a little while, and the policeman says, they're not here. You sure you dropped them here? And the drunk man said, no, I'm pretty sure I dropped him back over there in that park. And the policeman said, well, why are you standing here looking for him? He says, well, here there's light. <laughs> the drunk man illustrates a couple of things that we often do. First of all, we tend to look for answers where we're comfortable looking rather than where answers might actually be found. And second, we do this because we are impaired, not necessarily with alcohol, but may maybe we're impaired by a limited understanding, or we've got cultural blinders on, or we're just misinformed. But for whatever reason, we really struggle sometimes to step outside the light of our little bitty circle to a place where we might actually find truth. To step beyond our own biases and our own preferences into the broad world of reality. It's hard to do. Let's look together at Leviticus chapter 18 as we get back into this amazingly practical book that hardly ever we look at, particularly as Christians, because uh, so many of the laws just seem so outdated and irrelevant. In fact, this week I was combing through some outdated and irrelevant laws of our own country. Did you know, for example, in Devon, Connecticut, it is unlawful to walk backwards after sunset? In Maine, shotguns are required to be taken to church in the event of an Indian attack. In the great state of Texas, the Encyclopedia Britannica is banned because it contains a formula for making beer at home. You're all going to run home and look at your encyclopedia, aren't you? And in Texas, it's also illegal to shoot a buffalo from the second story of a hotel. These laws are still on the books, but of course we laugh at them because... You know, who cares about these things? They obviously had a purpose at the time they were made, but today they're outdated and they're not enforced. When we come to the Bible, and particularly the book of Leviticus, we seem to have the same issue. I mean, these are, these are laws that obviously were good for a time, thousands of years ago, but today we, we read Leviticus and we sort of think, eh, 
not really in touch with reality. I mean, I don't shoot a lot of buffaloes from hotel window. Leviticus just doesn't have that much to say to us in the 21st century. Well, huh? let's look at Leviticus chapter 18, and all of a sudden, the ink seems wet. Leviticus 18, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live accord to, with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Remember, in Leviticus, the context. This is a people that God has just taken out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt for 430 years. God has delivered them with a powerful hand, and he's about to take them into the promised land. So out of one pagan land into another pagan land, and in this in-between time, God lays down the law, literally, and says, I don't want you to be like the place where you came from. I don't want you to be like the place where you're going. You are going to be a unique people that reflects me. In fact, he says twice, I am the Lord your God, in these verses we read. And there in verse 5, I am the Lord. It's speaking of developing a worldview that is different from the world. When we talk about, when we talk about worldview, what do you think about? Hopefully, you think about viewing the world from a biblical perspective, at least a Christian worldview or biblical worldview. Because different people view the world from a different perspective. If you go to other countries, definitely you'll understand that they have a different view of the world. Some people used to view the world as flat, that the, uh, the, everything, that the, 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 the cosmos in a, in a way was totally different than how we understand it now. Some people don't view that the Lord God is God, but rather that there is no God. And your worldview shapes how you live. It shapes the decisions that you make and the values that you have. It, it shapes who is the ultimate authority. Is it me? Is it government? Is it my, you know, leader, whoever the leader is? God reminds his people to have a biblical or a godly worldview begins with the phrase, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. And remember, Moses writes Leviticus just as he wrote Exodus, just as he wrote Genesis. And you remember at the beginning of Genesis, God created the world. So a worldview in the big context of what they were being told is, I created you, I redeemed you from Egypt, and now I'm, giving you, I'm laying down the law that you may be, your character may reflect my character. This is a, the worldview. Now, it's true that some of the laws here in Leviticus and in the Bible are obsolete. In fact, when we read the New Testament, we're told that we're no longer under the law, no longer under the book of Leviticus, as it were. And yet at the same time, we're also told that uh, all Scripture, including the Old Testament, including Leviticus, 
is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So if we're no longer under the law, and yet it's beneficial for all these things, how do we do that? How do we read the Old Testament or any portion of Scripture that may specifically not refer to us, you know, offering sacrifices and a number of other things Leviticus talks about? How do we get anything from that? Well, of course, the answer, as we've said many times, is we've got to find the timeless truth. There is a truth that is timeless that is being applied in that particular way, which now is obsolete, but the truth is not obsolete. It's timeless. And we apply it maybe in a different way today, but it's the same truth being applied. All of God's laws, even the obsolete laws, reflect something about God's character and something about what, how he wants us to live. So, if something seems obsolete while you're reading the Bible, our challenge is to step away from the streetlight, to step away from what seems right in our own eyes, and to take, to go to the place where truth can truly be found. Here's a principle that we'll pull right from these first five verses. And it's this. The Lord calls every believer to exclusive loyalty to him. The Lord calls every believer to exclusive loyalty to him. And this is not just here in Leviticus. We read it all throughout Scripture. You shall have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by means of me. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Our devotion is to be exclusively to God and to no one else. Not like the land that we've come from, not like the land where we're living but exclusively to God. And here's the problem. If we were to continue to read on in Joshua and in Judges and in the Samuels and in the Kings and in all the prophets, we would also see that Israel moved into the land, but it wasn't long before the ways of the Canaanites became the ways of God's people. Initially, when they went into the land, they were shocked by it. It surprised them. It offended them as well it should have. But they begin to tolerate it. And what becomes tolerated eventually becomes allowed. What becomes allowed eventually becomes embraced. And then, it, then we begin to do it. To where at the, at the worst time in Israel's history, they were sacrificing their own children to Canaanite gods. See how far they had slipped? And it's because they weren't careful to remember, I am the Lord, your God. Listen, I read uh, Proverbs 14. Just listen. You don't need to turn there. Proverbs 14, verse 34. Talk about a timeless truth. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. The word for exalts, righteousness exalts a nation. The Hebrew word, therefore, exalts, refers to morality. It's almost like morality is a crown to any nation. But then the flip side of that, the word for disgrace, sin is a disgrace to any people. The word for disgrace is used only one other time in the entire Old Testament, and that's here in this context of Leviticus, which we're about to look at. And it speaks of a moral disgrace. Um, 
I hope maybe you've heard the story about this elderly couple driving down the road in their pickup truck. She is, uh, he's at the steering wheel. She's over on the passenger side with the window rolled down and they're enjoying, you know, the morning and they're driving into town and they see this other couple, younger couple in a pickup truck. And, you know, the man's in the driver's seat, but the woman, she's like right over beside him and like, you know, their arms around each other and everything. And there's no space between them. And the woman said to her, the old woman said to her husband, you know, we used to do that. We used to drive around like that. And the old man said, I never moved. <laughs> I like that because God has never moved. And if a nation, or let's get more personal, if you or I find ourselves distant from God, who moved? It wasn't the Lord. And it's very easy to shake our heads at our culture and how much it's changed. I mean, it's changed a lot, hasn't it? I can see it just in my lifetime. You can probably see it in your lifetime as well. Uh, I wasn't around back in the 50s, but I remember reading about how uh, the big deal was that Lucille Ball couldn't say the word pregnant on television. Today, it's like, who cares about that? Uh, what we see on television is far different than it was back in the, even the 70s. But our culture obviously has slipped, and it's really easy to shake our heads at how much the culture's changed. But remember that God is not talking here to the culture. God is talking to his people, saying, you're about to go into a culture that isn't anything like I want you to be. And so you've got to be careful. Loyalty is simple daily obedience. Well, the chapter goes on to list its blunt prohibitions. We're going to read some of them, blunt enough without reading all of them. But we're going to quickly see the difference between the idolatries and then and now are not that different. We're in chapter 18. Look down at verse 18. Leviticus 18, 18. The Lord tells Moses, You shall not, not just Moses, but all God's people, you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord." You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these, by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled." Well, how's that for a Sunday school lesson? You know, I actually thought about not reading that. 
And then I thought, well, heck, this is the Bible. It's okay to read the Bible. But boy, it is a challenge, isn't it? In our culture, we are so pulled toward compromise and toward tolerance and toward love that the Word of God no longer can be read. In fact, in fact, I remember very, very well the challenge when I was on staff at Insight for Living, the challenge that we had with uh, broadcasting, just reading a text like this in some foreign countries overseas. It's illegal to do it, and the broadcast would be shut down. It's illegal. These few verses we read comments regarding polygamy, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexuality, bestiality, and we skipped all the verses prior to this that talk about every form of incest that you can imagine. Now, a lot of these are defined by our government today as illegal, like polygamy, killing children, at least outside the womb, and incest. But what we've got to be careful about, very, very careful about in our minds, is equating what's illegal with what's immoral. Sometimes they're the same, but sometimes they're not the same. For example, in some countries, it's illegal to read the Bible. That's not immoral, but, but it is illegal in that context. In other contexts, what is immoral uh, is not illegal. And it goes all over the place. But the point is, governments determine what's legal, but who determines what's moral? Once again, we're talking about worldview. Who is the ultimate authority? Who ultimately is the one that gets to decide? Or not gets to decide, but who decides what is right and wrong? When God created Adam and Eve, he created Adam and Eve and he gave them the one simple command, and their choice was not to decide whether that command was right or wrong. Their choice was to decide if they were going to do right or wrong. God had already determined it. What is right and wrong? But a different worldview says, no, I get to determine what's right and wrong. I am the ultimate authority, not God. That's a different worldview. But a biblical worldview has a different standard. And there's a challenge. Um, look at chapter 19, the very first verse. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Very simple. And if you look in your margin, you probably see a cross-reference to Ephesians 1 and also to 1 Peter chapter 1. Specifically, Peter quotes this verse from Leviticus chapter 19 and makes application to it for us as Christians. This is a timeless truth. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Jesus paraphrased this in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, You shall be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. He gives us a standard. And, by the way, it's a standard we've failed. It's a standard that we have failed. Keep your place here in Leviticus, if you would, because we'll come right back, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. A 
A lot of times we're told to be good. In fact, you could summarize most sermons on Sunday mornings with those two words. Be good. Boy, it'd really shorten things, wouldn't it, if we just did that? Good morning, everyone. Let's sing three hymns. Let's stand while we read the Bible. Here's the sermon. Be good. Now let's go eat at Luby's. But no, why should we be good? Why? We all know that we should be good. But why? And the reason why, we're told there in Leviticus, is because we are to be holy because God is holy. He is our standard if we have a biblical worldview. And design reveals intent. When God created humanity, man and woman, male and female, it it reveals the intent of God. So 1 Corinthians 6, look down at verse 9. Verse 9. And before we do, let me just say, one of the reasons that the world has such a problem with us as Christians is for good reason. We are hypocrites. We are hypocrites. They look at us as finger-wagging, Bible-thumping hypocrites. Because mostly what we share is, you're a sinner. God hates sin. Ergo, God probably doesn't like you very much, is the implication. And the implication is, I'm in good shape, but you're a sinner. Well, who wants to be part of that group? And yet that's how the world often looks at us. It's such a challenge, because we often do have a double standard. And those who are literate enough in the Scripture can even look at Leviticus and say, You can't have it both ways. You can't read these verses in Leviticus that say, don't do this, don't do that. God God says this is sin. God says that is sin. And then also say, well, now I'm no longer under the law, and yet still hold me to the law. But some truths are timeless. 1 Corinthians 6, look at verse 9. Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a challenging list. And it's challenging because all of us are in it. Now, you may not be guilty of all of it, but we're all guilty of some of it. And all and any of it is enough to keep us out of the kingdom of God. We've all fallen short. And I really appreciate that Paul includes this because so often Christians and Bible teachers will make a beeline to this verse and say, see, look, homosexuality is not in the will of God. Well, that's clear from this verse. In fact, we're told it is defined as unrighteous. And there's even two words used here. Effeminate is the technical word used for the passive partner in the sexual act. Homosexual is for the active partner in that act. And we say, great, shut the book and we're done. But that's not all the verse says. Thieves, nor the covetous. Covetous. Anybody ever struggle with coveting? 
Anybody ever coveted? We have all done that. And it's right beside these other big sins. Point being, we've all done this. And it is so, this is, this is one of the big challenges that the world has with us because we are quick to say, uh, God condemns all the sins that I don't do. Which isn't true. He, we are all guilty. Not just the sins that we choose to focus on. We are all guilty before God. But look at verse 11, the wonderful verse 11. Such were some of you, writing to these Corinthians, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. This is what you were, but you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter what your past is. Jesus Christ died for your sins. And when we share Christ with other people, our passion needs to be not only to say, here's the sin, but here's the sin solution. Here's the sin, and here's the sin solution. And by the way, I'm guilty of it too. I'm not just talking to you about your sin. I'm telling you, I have experienced the blessing of forgiveness of sin. And God loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible is a message of good news. The gospel is good news. The good news of the gospel isn't, you're a sinner. (laughs) The good news of the gospel is, we have all sinned. You have sinned, I have sinned, and Christ has taken away that sin by his death on the cross. All of us find ourselves in these verses. Those of us who place our faith in Christ find ourselves in verse 11. Verse 18, at the bottom, Paul writes, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins in his own body, against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Once again, worldview. Is God your God? Is Christ your Savior? To glorify God in your body is to live with the holiness of God. That's the the big challenge. If you look one chapter earlier, look at chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9. These are a couple of verses that we really skip over when we shouldn't. Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean at all with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would actually have to go out of the world. It's like what Christ prayed that night before He died. I pray that you would protect them, that they would be in the world, but not of the world. We must be in the world. We don't have to be of the world. We must be in the world to share the gospel with the world. And Paul is saying, don't disassociate yourself with unbelievers. How will they ever hear about Christ? The main thing is, 
Just don't allow them to sway you to become their lifestyle. Our uh, daughter, Katie, is a registered nurse, and she works with other uh, nurses, obviously, from a variety of backgrounds. And uh, one nurse that she worked with is a lesbian, and she knows that Kate is a Christian. And as soon as they got to know one another well enough to actually have a a conversation beyond, you know, the surface, this uh, other lady told Kate, she said, I kind of feel like you're judging me. And Kate says, I'm not judging you at all. She said, there wasn't anything that Kate did that implied that. It was just because of that she was a Christian. And in a way, this lady was asking, are you judging me? And Kate said, uh, I don't remember exactly how she told me, but she said that basically her response was, it's pointless to point out your sins when I have sins as well. And the reality is that the, that the bigger issue is not to talk about the branches, but it's to talk about the roots, that we all have sinned and we need Christ. Christ has died for me and my sins, just like he's died for you and yours. That's the issue. God loves you and sent Jesus to die for your sin. The only reason we should ever talk about sin with the world is to introduce the gospel. That's the problem that our culture sees with us as Christians. We're great at pointing out sin. We're not so great at pointing out the sin solution. The only reason we should ever talk about sin is to introduce the gospel, and it's the gospel that we all need. Now, turn back to Leviticus 19. We read those first couple of verses about being holy, for I am holy. This is the standard, and it's a standard we've all failed. And if we were to continue reading down through Leviticus 19, we'd see every one of the Ten Commandments reproduced in this chapter. And it reminded me, I don't know if you remember, I think it was about 20 years ago when the Ten Commandments monument was removed from the rotunda of the Montgomery, Alabama uh, judicial building because the federal courts decided that the monument violated the Constitution's prohibition on government promotion of religion. And then this week, I was absolutely stunned to read in the news, maybe you saw it as well, that the Texas Senate has passed a bill which will require public elementary and secondary schools in the state to display the Ten Commandments in the classroom. Absolutely shocked. In fact, I thought, this has got to be a late April Fool's. And so I looked in several places, and it's absolutely legitimate. The bill is going to take place this fall unless it uh, gets voted in earlier. But I I read that, and I I remember just how I was sad 20 years ago and was taken away from the Alabama uh, Judicial Building. And how happy I am this week as I read about how the Ten Commandments are going to be put right back in classes. But I think the thing we've got to be careful of as Christians is to be so concerned about the removal of a monument or the placement of a plaque about the Ten Commandments when the presence of those commandments in classrooms or in a courthouse has nothing more to do with the godliness of our nation than the Bible's in our lap here in our class. If we don't live it. Because otherwise, it's just there to mock us. It's just there to condemn us. 
The issue is not do we see it or do we proclaim it, but do we live it or is it dead stone? This was Christ's big problem with the religious people of his day who were all concerned about the monuments and shaking up the the tradition that they had established. Christ shook it up pretty good. Christ's big emphasis was to love the Lord, to, to live it. Here in chapter 19, we have, if you look at verse 2, the end of verse 2, 19 verse 2, uh, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then verse 3, end of verse 3, I am the Lord your God. And if we were to look at verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, 14, 16, 18, 25, 28, 30, 31, 32, 34, 36, 37, 16 times in this chapter, the verses say, I am the Lord your God. It's an average of every other verse. In other words, the reason God gives us these commands, or God gave them these commands, is because of his character. There is no part of life that is divorced from theology. Theology is not just theoretical. It's very practical. In fact, nine of the Ten Commandments for us as Christians are repeated in the New Testament. And uh, the only one that's not repeated is the Sabbath. We'll actually talk about that here in a few chapters as we talk about the Sabbath later on. But let's look at a very practical verse, a couple of verses here, examples before us. Uh, Look at verse 3, chapter 19, verse 3. It says, Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. So, reverence your mother and father. I mean, this is a timeless truth. Hardly need to make any changes to that to make it relevant. That is a timeless truth as it sits. We, we reverence our parents Even after we left home, we still honored them. And then the Sabbath, as I said, we'll talk about that. And then verse 4, do not turn to idols or make molten gods. Now, I don't know about you, but me personally, I don't have a big problem with molten gods. Don't have them in my home. Don't plan to go order one at Amazon today. I don't even know if I could find one. I probably could find one on Amazon today. But this is not something that our culture is big on. And so we tend to look at this and think, eh, that's irrelevant. But the reality is we go, wait, what's the timeless truth behind that? That is expressed then by molten gods, but today maybe it's expressed a different way. That is that we have a heart, a fallen heart, that's like a rare earth magnet to idolatry. And that is anything that that competes with our worship and our allegiance to God. Well, look down at verse 33 for another very practical uh, principle that we'll glean before we're done. Moses writes, When a stranger resides with you in the land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Notice the words, the stranger shall be as the native. 
I love this because after spending verses and verses and verses on the importance of hating sin in the world, God reminds his people that doesn't mean you hate the world. That doesn't mean you hate people. In fact, he says, you may even have a stranger or an alien residing in your land. And then the words are used in verse 34, you shall love him as yourself. So here's the second and final principle from this. The Lord calls every believer to live a holy life and also to love unbelievers. To live a holy life and to love unbelievers. So let me ask you a question, and please don't answer out loud. Does your life attract unbelievers to God? Or do we simply protest when the world removes our monuments? The tax collectors and prostitutes flocked to Jesus Christ. It's not because he said their sin was okay. It's because he loved them, and they knew it. It was inescapable. And it was the love in spite of the conviction that caused them to have their lives change. It was the hypocrites, the religious hypocrites, that didn't flock to Jesus, but actually killed him. So we don't participate in the world's evil, but we show acts of kindness and we love them until, as Joe Aldrich says, love them till they ask you why, and then tell them of Jesus Christ. All right, well, we've got a few minutes. I wonder if there are any questions or clarifications that we could discuss. Anybody got a question or clarification? You Hang on, Joe. We've got a microphone right up here in the front. How far? Front, front. All right. Thanks, Daniel. So, um, you know, when I read this, having taught on the border for a year to the seventh grade children in Del Rio, and uh, having loved the Mexican people for many years, several mission trips, uh, and now what I read in this verse, it would be nice to see this read on the Senate floor sometime in the Capitol, and just our perspective of how we're treating and receiving our alien brothers who are fleeing many times very difficult circumstances. And, you know, this is not a political statement. This is just figuring out how can we really love our brothers in this hemisphere who are undergoing such persecution difficulty, and I'm all for law and order and people abiding and respecting our borders. So I, that's more of a comment than a question, okay? So you don't have to answer that. All right. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anybody have a question or clarification? Maybe I should say a little more specifically. All right. Yes. Thank you. Today's immorality is tolerance. We tolerate. We see all this crud on TV. We can hardly find something to watch because it's all full of trash. And I think a lot of our problem is we have grown uh, complacent and we tolerate what goes on instead of standing up for what we believe in. I had a sign on my desk for years. It's at home now by G.K. Chesterton. 
and it said tolerance is the virtue of people who have nothing to believe in. It's so true, and I, and I want to just reiterate um, what we what we talked about in our text as well. But we've got definitely a struggle with tolerance, but uh, I think tolerance begins in our own hearts. You know, it's not just that we tolerate all the garbage on television, but we tolerate it in the sense of we'll watch it, you know, and we'll uh, we'll allow the compromise to begin here before uh, when, when often what we're concerned about is change in the world when we should first look here in our own hearts. All right, anybody else? All right, well, I am so glad these chapters are done. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I thought about skipping them. Let, let's pray. Father, our Savior, your Son, Jesus, said, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. We're great stone throwers. we got good aim. And we've had lots of practice at it. But Christ's words to those who wanted to judge that woman are his words to us as well. Not that we should never take a stand or make a statement, but along with the stand and the statement should be the humility of our uh, admission that we have leanings to the world as well. And these chapters in Leviticus are warnings to God's people of that reality. Not to grandstand on morality and uh, point fingers elsewhere, but to be very, very cautious as we live in a culture that is not a biblical worldview, that we don't allow our hearts to get the world's hooks in them and to draw us closer and closer to compromise and farther and farther from Jesus Christ. That being said, Father, also give us the courage, even though we aren't perfect, to speak the truth in love, to call a spade a spade, but to never do so without also calling the gospel as the solution. Give us the wisdom of that balance and give us the, uh, the joy of seeing fruit of it. We also pray for our, our country and our culture, because this is also part of your command for us, that um, for kings and all who are in authority, that we might lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. For this pleases God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Thank you for our Savior, for his example, and for our privilege of living it. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. It's a blessing. And thank you to our, uh, our missionaries from Evantel. We appreciate the word that you brought us. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. <laughs>